Welcome to StoryCorps, Share Your Science. I'm Sandy Duick, a science communicator at the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute at NASA's Ames Research Center in Silicon Valley, California. Today, I'm catching up with Dr. Nikki Peranto, who also works at Ames, but is currently working from her home office due to COVID. Welcome, Nikki. Hi, Sandy. Thanks for having me. You grew up on a farm in northern Idaho, went to University of Puget Sound in Washington, Portland State University, worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Forest Service Rocky Mountain Research Station, and then you chose to come to Ames Research Center. In over a decade of research at Ames, you've studied astrobiology and worked with life forms in a lab. You found time to mentor high school students through postdocs, and now you're designing biological experiments to help astronomers understand how to look for life on distant worlds. Who are you? How did you go from a highly inquisitive and resourceful girl on a farm who could fix anything to an astrobiology researcher who studies microbes on Earth in order to search for life on other worlds? So let's start with NASA established a new team, the Center for Life Detection Science, of which you are a member. What is this team and what's your role on it? That's a good question and thanks for asking. So the Center for Life Detection was conceived by another scientist at, at NASA Ames. His name is Tori Holer. And broadly, it is both a service activity and also a research activity. So uh, the service part is that um, all the work that we do is meant to help with mission planning uh, for life detection missions when we search for life um, either within our solar system or outside of our solar system. So one component of that is reaching out to the scientific community and asking and building a database of what we call biosignatures. So biosignatures are anything that's that's evidence of life. And we're building this, this repository of information that will help with mission planning. So we're engaged in that community activity now. And then there's a research component. And in general, I study the signatures that, that life makes. And so these are relevant for understanding the early evolution of life on Earth. And also it can help in searching for evidence of life on, for example, Mars or ocean worlds or planets outside of our solar system called exoplanets. And it's, it's, a, it's a rather large team. We have a number of, of different scientists um, involved. And are these scientists of many different backgrounds, geologists, astrobiologists, planetary scientists? Yes, yeah, the team itself is is certainly interdisciplinary, but the theme that binds us is astrobiology. Astrobiology is the the investigation of the origin and evolution and distribution of life in the universe. So it's okay. fairly broad. <laughs> okay, so let's break this down, starting with exoplanets. What qualifies as an exoplanet and are you actually searching for life on an exoplanet? Yeah, that's a great question again. So just to give a little bit of context, in general, I'm a biologist and I do collaborate with astronomers. And so there has been a really exciting mission that, that some of the listeners may have heard about. It's called the Kepler mission. 
and it was specifically designed to detect planets outside of our solar system. So we're familiar with the planets within our, our solar system, Mars and, and so forth, but this is meant to look beyond our solar system. So to look at um, planets orbiting other stars within our Milky Way galaxy and, and even beyond our galaxy. And so again, uh, exoplanets are planets orbiting other stars outside of our solar system where our planets orbit the sun. Are we really looking for life on planets outside our solar system? Yes, we will be. Um, so right now, the focus has been on detecting exoplanets outside of our solar system, getting an estimate of how many there are within our galaxy. And then the next step is asking, are they habitable? And what that means is, do they contain all the ingredients for life? Are they rocky? Do they contain liquid water? Are they orbiting at the right distance from their star to make sure that that water is liquid? And then there are other ingredients for life, like we need elements and a source of energy. And then the next step beyond that, once you determine they're habitable, is to ask, do they actually host life? So that's where I come in as a biologist. And so again, I study the signatures that life makes, and then I collaborate with astronomers and hand that data to them, and they can look for evidence of these signatures of life on these exoplanets. Thank you, that's a great explanation. Okay, so in your work with astronomers, I've heard that in your lab, you design instruments, and most recently you designed an anaerobic glove box. What is this and what's this going to do for astronomers? Yeah, so what I try to do in the lab is recreate a type of environment that we think might exist on a habitable exoplanet. So what I can do is not only try to simulate the types of gases that might be in the atmosphere, so just picture a big box that you can pipe in any type of gas mixture that you want, but also I can try to simulate the type of light coming from different stars. So our star is the sun and it emits certain wavelengths of light, has a certain spectrum. But there are other types of stars out there, um, one called an M-dwarf, and they emit more in the red end of the spectrum, so different types of light. So one of the, um, the types of research that I do is on photosynthesis, so microbes that can perform photosynthesis, and asking the question, could they survive on an exoplanet that is receiving a different type of light? So I simulate all of that in the lab and just ask the question, can they survive? And furthermore, what signs of life, what biosignatures they produce? So those can be gases that they produce, or it can be like a certain type of pigment that we might see on the surface of an exoplanet. You are a genius. <laughs> no, there's a lot of wonderful scientists out there and I enjoy collaborating with the astronomers. Okay, but why are you looking so far away from our solar system for life? Why are we looking so far away from Earth for life? Well, you know, we are looking for evidence of life, again, within our solar system. So there is a lot of effort that is directed towards looking for evidence of past life on Mars, ancient life. So you, the listeners may have heard of the Curiosity rover, and we recently had the landing of the Perseverance rover. And so those rovers are um, really heading towards life detection. And so they're, they're driving around, they're looking for evidence of preserved life in old rocks on Mars. So there's certainly a lot of activity there. Also for ocean worlds, uh, Europa and Enceladus, 
let us, there's thoughts that there could be life living in the oceans underneath the ice caps. Um, But then also there's a question, you know, could life exist uh, again on rocky habitable planets outside of our solar system? I know that you also work a little bit closer to home than exoplanets, Yellowstone National Park and Lassen Volcanic National Park. You load up your Subaru with a portable lab, a sleeping bag and a tent, and off you go into the woods with a big can of bear spray. (laughs) Explain your work as a field scientist. I love doing field work and it is probably my entree into science, you know, from the very beginning. And uh, so I do work in, in both Yellowstone and Lassen, as you said. And so the question is why? Why does NASA care about these these areas? And it's because they are what we consider analog environments. So they contain things like hot springs and volcanic activity that we think may have happened on other planets. So, for example, Mars from the Spirit Rover, we have evidence that there was once what we call hydrothermal activity on the planet early in its history. Um, We know that because of the types of minerals that these systems make. And so those types of minerals match what we find in Yellowstone and in Lassen. So they serve as analog sites. But on Mars, everything's dried up. You know, if there were hot springs operating, they're all dried up. But we study microbes in these modern, what we call modern systems, so that are existing today, to potentially help direct the search for life in these old, dried up deposits on Mars. So again, I study these analog environments and we go out into the field, we study how the microbes live. Um, Sometimes we bring samples back to the lab and analyze them, but it is very relevant to do what we call the in situ or in place field work in uh, actually out there because that's also kind of replicating what our rover scientists are doing on Mars as well. They carry their instruments out in the field, so to speak, as well. Describe your science journey, starting with when you were a kid. What did you do as a kid that led you so deeply into science? Um, Were you naturally curious about everything? Did you drive your family crazy with questions? (laughs) Well, you know, a lot of scientists, I think we all have different paths. And, you know, as you mentioned, I was a farm kid in northern Idaho and in a, in a very rural area. And I just had a natural love of being outside. Uh, I grew up on a lake and there we were surrounded by beautiful rocks that I learned down the road are actually very ancient rocks, <laughs> 1.2 billion years old, but I had no clue at the time. I just thought these are cool rocks. Um, so it really just, you know, again, growing up on a farm and being an outdoor kid and doing chores, you know, I just had an inherent love of the natural environment. And then when I went on to college, I was still unsure what I wanted to do. And I just knew that I liked biology and geology. So I started taking classes. And it wasn't until I took a microbiology class uh, that I fell in love with it. And I learned of what environmental microbiology was. So it brought in my natural love of the outdoors and all the outdoor activities that I do, like skiing and backpacking and uh, mountain biking, etc., and, the, and it marries those two worlds. And so I was able to pursue the science and, and the microbiology, but also do it in the field. And so really, I, I owe my path in science uh, to my mentors. And so it was really my undergraduate mentor who first set me on the path of astrobiology. 
I had no idea what it was. I didn't even really follow NASA. And um, she had received funding from NASA in the past. So it was really through her that I started to learn. And then um, through actually her connections that, that she connected me uh, with folks at Ames. So when you meet with uh, middle school and high school kids who, who maybe like you, don't know what path lies ahead of them, you know, what subjects are going to interest them in life. What do you tell them about your experience and, and perhaps how they should uh, or what they should pursue in school? Well, we do a lot of outreach with, with high school students in a rural underserved area. And so we try to provide them with what we call authentic science experiences. And it's place-based. So we take them up to Lassen Volcanic National Park and we take them out into the field. We teach them the process of doing science. And so we, we guide them in making observations. We help them develop hypotheses to test. But in general, in terms of recommending students what classes to take, um, it's just really good to get a, a solid foundation in science in general. A lot of students will ask, you know, they'll say, I love astrobiology. It's so exciting. Do I need to take all sorts of different classes in every ask? Because, you know, astrobiology is so interdisciplinary and so wide ranging. You can do, again, everything from astronomy to microbiology. But the recommendation in general, I think, is to always get a good foundation in one science and then learn and branch out from there. So, for example, you can focus on chemistry and, and build up your expertise there and then bring in the interdisciplinary part and the astrobiology part. For the graduate programs in astrobiology, that's how they're designed. So you always want to have a solid basis in any particular type of science, whether it be physics, biology, chemistry, geology, whatever, and then branch out from there. If you weren't a scientist, what else might you be doing? <laughs> that's a great question. And this might sound like it's coming out of left field, but I actually would find deep satisfaction in being a funeral director, um, not from a morbid aspect, but from, and not to overshare, but because I, in my personal life, has have gone through uh, so much death and loss, uh, it's very meaningful for me to help organize funerals, help people with the grieving process. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I, would, I would love to be a funeral director. You would be very good at that. Oh, thank you. I have a tender that. In your career so far, uh, what job has inspired you the most or made you think differently about your life and the world around you? Professionally, I would say I have been so deeply impacted by that mission that I mentioned earlier, the Kepler mission. For me, it's been so revolutionary to understand the number of planets outside of our solar system. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there are estimates, and, and this number may be changing, so don't quote me on this, but, you know, if you say there's roughly 100 billion uh, stars just within our Milky Way galaxy, and say, if there was only one or two, you know, planets orbiting them, you know, if you do the math and then multiply that by another 100 billion galaxies out there, and then you ask the question of all of those billions and billions and billions opportunities, you know, some fraction may actually 
uh, be able to host live. So for me, scientifically, that's very exciting. And I love collaborating with astronomers. It's a new field for me. I love to learn. This has definitely pushed me. It's put me back in the beginner seat, which I think that we should always retain that beginner's perspective. Um, so yeah, it's just been refreshing and exciting for me. And I love it. This is a podcast and there are no visuals of you that I can share with the audience. So I'm going to make some assumptions about you and I want you to agree or disagree. Number one, I wear a white lab coat. <laughs> I actually agree. I do wear a, a, a white lab coat sometimes. Um, and it's more from a practical aspect of like if I'm working with nasty chemicals to protect myself. <laughs> but I, I will say I also did purchase a tie-dyed lab coat. So that's fun. So, yeah, some of the work that we do in the lab, again, for safety reasons, we, we wear what's called PPE, personal protective equipment. Although contrary to like what you might see in the movies, I don't always carry around like colored beakers of liquids <laughs> that smoke. <laughs> that was my next question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, do you also sit behind a computer all day when you're not in the lab? <laughs> right now I do with COVID. <laughs> um, but I would say in any other normal year, I would spend, oh, it's, it's the amount of computer time is increasing, but We'll say, you know, 40 to 50% behind the computer, you know, another 30%, 20 to 30% doing field work, and then a variety of, you know, other activities, um, what we call programmatics and, and whatnot. But I do love, I do love lab work. Oh, I should say, I should back up and say the other 20, 30% like lab work. So I do love lab work. I do love field work. And I hope to always, um, to hold on to those. As we go on in our careers and progress, sometimes you get asked to do more and more other activities that require you to sit behind your computer more. Um, but because I love, you know, those other activities so much, I'll, and I, I'll always want to remain grounded in that. I have no hobbies or outside interests. Science research is my life. <laughs> um, what I love about that question is that it provides an opportunity to talk about balance. So I think in years past, uh, there was always sort of an expectation or pressure to be so dedicated to your work and only do science, you know, like 24-7. I think that there's been an increasing recognition and permission to have tried to lead a balanced life. It can be hard sometimes. So uh, for me, my, my outlet outside of science is, uh, as I mentioned, I love doing outdoor activities. So I'm very passionate about skiing. I grew up in a ski town. My dad worked at a ski area for 33 years. Skiing is a big part of who I am and my identity. I love backcountry skiing. I love ski mountaineering and climbing and mountain biking and, and whatnot. So that's my outlet. That's what keeps me sane. In my family, I'm best known for... Hmm, let's see. So within my family, you know, I was the I am the youngest kid on both sides of the family. So I think what my family members might know me as is, is the young kid who kind of grew up providing the audience for all of my hilarious and funny older cousins and aunts and uncles. And so I I love laughing. I love to be entertained by them. Uh, and even my best friend, Kylie, that's kind of our dynamic. She's completely hilarious and I love being her audience. That's cool. <laughs> uh, in my work, I'm best known for 
for work, I think people might associate me with um, our Astrobiology High School intern program that we have. It's a partnership with Lassen Volcanic National Park and Ames Research Center and Red Bluff High School in Red Bluff. Uh, it's been a wonderful program and we've been doing it for over 10 years. Uh, scientifically, people just probably associate me with microbiology and biosignatures, uh, you know, again, both for solar system stuff and exoplanet stuff. And the final question, I believe we're alone in the universe. I disagree with that. I, I think it's reasonably likely that, that there is life elsewhere. We shall see. It's it's possible within our lifetime that we can have that question answered. Are we alone? You know, by examining different um, planetary bodies within our solar system, but then also exoplanets. And we do have, you know, these mission concepts. So these ideas or plans for bigger and better telescopes, um, space-based telescopes down the road, and also ground-based telescopes that might be able to peer at a distant exoplanet and look for signs of life in its atmosphere. So look at gases that, that life um, potentially makes. And as I mentioned previously, now that we know that there are you know, literally billions of, of exoplanets out there, it seems reasonable to, to think that some of them would hold the conditions for life. And because we know microbes are able to inhabit so many different environments on the Earth, and I study what are called extreme environments, they're so crafty at using all different sources of energy out there, both sunlight um, and also chemical energy, that it seems reasonable to think that they might be able to use that type of energy and all those ingredients for life on an exoplanet. Thank you, Nikki for sharing your knowledge and your thoughts. I always learn so much when we talk together. Oh, thanks, Sandy. I really enjoyed chatting with you and and I'm just thankful for the opportunity and, and I enjoy yeah sharing my path and, and letting students and others know out there that you don't necessarily have to go, you know, straight through uh, go on to grad school and, you know, become a scientist right away. My path, um, like others, was probably a little bit more winding and circuitous, but I was still able to end up where I am, and I'm very thankful for that. So thanks for chatting with me today.